Hey there, welcome to the Book of Medora podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Zelda games and also wherever we want to sometimes. I'm your host, Crystal, and with me is Monica. Hello. And Cameron. Hi. Uh, today we're going to do a mailbag because we have a lot of emails. We just love doing emails. And honestly, emails are a pretty soothing thing to go through in a time where it's like right now at the beginning of 2021. It's good to just have a nonstop source of Zelda things to talk about. Let's talk about all the Zelda things. Yeah. What is the last email that we left off at? Um, I believe... Let me check here real quick. I think that the last one that is starred would be the newest email that we haven't read, or oldest email we haven't read yet. Okie dokie. That would be from one Jackson, I believe. Jackson writes in, Do you think that Birth of the Wild could take place in the same Hyrule as the Wind Waker? If the Deku Tree pulled Hyrule back up out of the Great Sea, then possibly after a few thousand years the world could have become Breath of the Wild's map. Since the Wind Waker takes place after Ocarina of Time, this could also explain occurrences such as Lon Lon Ranch and Breath of the Wild. Now that I personally subscribe to this theory, it could still be possible, right? It's true, that is what happens. That is absolutely, like, if you want to read it that way, yeah. I that think all the theories things- are like, are of this. What would really be controversial is if Breath of the Wild happened before the Wind Waker. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, What what's your fuller take on this, Crystal? Yeah, this is one of the many things that happens. All of the things that could have happened, that's what happens. Yeah. Now, we do definitely have some listeners who send in questions like this who haven't gotten to the accursed timeline theory yet. But um, whenever I see a question like this, Crystal, I always think back to what you've said a couple of times regarding how once you deal with time scales like Breath of the Wild deals with, anything that can happen has probably happened. 10,000 years is a very long time. It's so long. You know, it happened 10,000 years ago from us. I have no idea, actually. People are like, huh, if we put seeds in the ground, food will grow. We don't have to move around. Man, I sure am glad we keep this cow around. Wait, did we have domesticated cattle 10,000 years ago? I know we had goats. Damn, I don't know. 10,000 years is a long fucking time. So yeah, Jackson, that's a perfectly valid theory. Now, Monica, why don't you go ahead and take this second one? Sure. This is... Also from Jackson. Actually, it's a different Jackson. Jackson from Grand Rapids. No. Yes. Hello, Cameron, Monica, and Crystal. I've been listening to the Phantom Hourglass episode, and I've been thinking, what if Tetra and Link were actually in a dream when they went to the realm of the Ocean King? This would explain why the pirates, from their perspective, thought they were gone for only a bit. It also explains the Japanese name. And I know what you're thinking. How does Link have the hourglass at the end of the game? As we've seen before, dreams can become reality courtesy of different spirits of good. Marin becomes real even though she was a dream of the windfish. And Lineback doesn't necessarily travel from the realm of the Ocean King. He just becomes real at the end. Maybe bringing Jolene over just for a good time. Thank you, and I hope you talk about the new Hyrule Warriors game soon and whether or not it is canon. Sincerely, Jackson from Grand Rapids. I feel like Jackson's trying to butter us up with pointing out that this is a spirits of good thing. Because it's like, yeah, yeah. Maybe he's trying to butter me up specifically. I think that's a perfectly valid reading. What do you think, Crystal? What's the difference between a dream world that can become real and the real world? 
I suppose it's a question of the genesis of life. Um, there's also the implication by our theories, because we had people fleeing as refugees into the realm of the Ocean King. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of what I'm talking about a little bit, because it's like, were these people here before, or did the Ocean King dream them up? As we know from Bloodborne, a dream can be a fairly persistent reality. It can stick around for some time. Yeah, that's true. We did learn that from Bloodborne. That is something that Bloodborne says. And Link's Awakening did take that idea from Bloodborne. Link's Awakening being the 2019 uh, Switch release. Yes, the 2019 uh, game Link's Awakening was inspired by Bloodborne. Bloodborne of 2015. The right, timeline yeah. lines up. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's true. It's accurate. Yeah. I'm glad that Nintendo went out of their way to make a more digestible, family-friendly version of the very strange cosmology of Bloodborne. If I had to pick a great one to be around, I guess it'd probably be the Windfish. He definitely seems the most chill of them. I would say at the point that a, a realm of dreams can become like persistent and have its own like history and like a consistent reality, it's uh, kind of a matter of semantics, whether it's a dream world or an alternate world. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, would would you apply this argument to Koholint as well? Yeah, if the windfish stayed asleep, Koholint would just be an, uh, another world, a Nino Kuni, if you will. Hmm. I wonder about that because there's a little bit of a there's like a tonal difference between the realm of the Ocean King versus Koholint, right? There, Koholint is very weird and operates on dream logic where people are like, huh, it's weird that things have always been this way. Have I ever stopped throwing this ball? No one knows. Here I go. But the, the Ocean King feels like a lived-in world, so to speak. I can't remember the game all that well, but I suppose the the Islanders had a little bit more depth or dimension. Yeah, I, I would argue that that's true. It definitely seemed like you were interacting with cultures. But yeah, dream logic, you know. Why is it called Hourglass of Dreams? I got nothing. Mugen Why is it no Sanadoke. I mean, Mugen can mean like um, like a fantasy, right? Like a Hyrule fantasy? Yeah, some kind of Hyrule Mugen. Oh, yes. How do we feel about the possibility... Mm. You ever start a sentence and then get halfway through it and realize you're not sure where it's going to end? Yeah, all the time. Okay, good. My train left the station, but it didn't have any, like, cars behind it. Um, I guess, like, on some level, there's not a whole lot of difference between them. But what do we make of the Phantom Ship in that case? Because so, it's known in the world, uh, the, the outside world, so to speak. Uh, the Phantom Ship is what's... Hmm. Yeah, what's the deal with the Phantom Ship? It's, it is known in the outside. It's not the same Phantom Ship that Zelda had, right? Right. Very different. That's the goat that I, I'm, they might even be named the same thing, but they're definitely not the same boat. It can't just be a dream. Can it? No. I feel like if this is a retread of, well, if Link's Awakening from 2019 is a retread of this, I feel like it takes it in a very different direction. Because, like, in Phantom Hourglass, Oshu, the Ocean King, is very much an active participant in trying to kill what in this case would be the Nightmare. And the Nightmare that afflicts the Windfish is definitely a parasitic creature in a fashion that's very similar to Bellum, but it's 
specifically parasitic to the wind fish. And it feels like Bellum is much more general. I just can't see the nightmare from Link's Awakening 2019 trying to steal Zelda's sacred power. It might. I think it could. How? I don't know. It's just feeding off the wind fish. Also, Bellum never tries to, like, talk to you. I don't know. It could be a dream, I suppose, but something about it feels different. Doesn't Bellum try to talk to you? I don't think so. It's not that kind of villain. It, it might talk to you through Linebeck once it possesses Linebeck. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That still counts as talking. Crystal, do you think that the world of the Ocean King motherfucking vanishes and ceases to be when the Ocean King regains his true form? No, I think it uh, keeps existing inside Ocean's belly. What? <laughs> it exists inside his little belly. Why is it inside of him? Where else would it be? The Bermuda it- Triangle. I... D- I, I, I do not think uh, this is a, a realm which Oshis has the, the title for. I think this is a realm that is an extension of him. That, that, does, that does make sense. It's hard to get into the, into the physics of gods, I guess. So when Oshis dies and its corpse is in Breath of the Wild, where is the world? Ooh, it didn't make it. <laughs> oh, no. oh. Yeah, I mean, See, if uh, if God of the Bible died, I don't know if the Earth's going to make it. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, the waters were there before Yahweh. You're and, also not in his belly, ostensibly. Well, if you subscribe to the idea that God is everywhere, then you could say that we are in his belly. God's verifiably not everywhere, according to the Christian tradition, because our image of hell is specifically a place without God. Checkmate. <laughs> Next question. I it should should we move on? I feel like that's an I I want to say that when Oceus dies, it's just like the barrier between the world of the Ocean King and the world of Greater Hyrule comes down, and now the ocean is just bigger. So Oceus is is not the world is not an extension of Oceus, but the barrier between worlds is. The world itself could be. I'm saying that when Oceus dies, the world that he kept apart kind of drops into and changes the space of the world that Oceus himself moves through. That makes sense. I'm glad that you think so, because I really wasn't sure while I was saying it. The Great Sea got a lot bigger. We'll know a little bit more if we ever see the... um, Anuki. Anukis. Or the Yukes. Yes. God, do you miss the Yukes, Crystal? I'd like to see them again. Pull up the emails, Monica. Okay. I think that it's my turn. Mm -hmm. Hi, team. Thank you for all your hard work. I believe there is a malformed case that there is a strong connection between Calamity Ganon and Spirit Tracks Link, and everything comes down to the Dano ending of Spirit Tracks. Oh, Christ. Mm. We're in for a ride now. Link doesn't know what he wants to be, so he sets out on a journey of discovery during which he discovers old Hyrule. He then discovers the ancient writings of the Sheikah and melts them into his engineering, re-establishing the Sheikah order, the perfect blend of warrior and technology. Link eventually rediscovers the Triforce and rules as a just king of the land for a time. He gains eternal youth from the power of technology and rules as a just king for ages, but over time he falls out of balance and slowly becomes corrupted by his power, as he longs for Zelda, his long-lost love. He is eventually sealed by the Sheikah deep beneath the castle due to his abuse of power. Over ages, the stories get all messed up, and the events of Spirit Tracks are actually the war 10,000 years ago, and Spirit Tracks Link eventually emerges and, knowing the technology intimately, takes control over it. The Dino ending is canon. Jason. That is a theory. That is an ups- a theory. 
That is an upsetting fan fiction, Jason. Neither a knight nor a train engineer, but instead uh, a wrathful king. The Calamity Ganon? <laughs> what do we think about this theory? Now, one thing this theory is not addressed is when does Link become a Gerudo? That is an important question. And more, when does Link become Ganon? Because it's motherfucking Ganon. <laughs> well, you become Ganon when you act like Ganon. Okay, I, I guess I should say, yeah, your question, when does Link become the Gerudo who's sealed in the beneath Hyrule? Breath of the Wild 2 kind of puts a hitch in things. Crystal's question is the most pointed, I think. I think the issue I have with this theory is Link becoming corrupted. Link as a character <laughs> is incorruptible. Oh, you're, Period. They're running up against one of the rules of Monica. Yes. There's very few of them. But they include Z-Link is always canon, uh -huh. and Link is incorruptible. Uh -huh. Fuck you. Yes, both of those things. There's probably more, but she won't know the rule until she sees it being broken. No, I was pretty clear about that from like uh, from Twilight Princess. Right. It's like, here are these corrupting pieces of thing. Hope you don't get corrupted. No, don't worry. <laughs> Link doesn't. He's fine. That's similar to something that happens in Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity. But we'll talk about that on another episode. Oh, I was thinking of the first Hyrule Warriors and how they botched it. Oh, they did botch that really bad. Owning the Master Sword got to Link's head. He forgot that the Master Sword is powered by friendship. What I like about this theory is that it does recognize that Spirit Tracks Link is the only one with an engineering degree. That That's true. That's strong. Yeah. He does know, he knows how to, do, he knows how trains work. So why couldn't he build a robot? That is an important question. A robot's just a differently shaped train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the giant ancient cores are really just engines, if you think about it. Ancient technology, ancient energy, that's just coal or steam. Man, this is opening my brain up. Maybe Link could have been involved in all that. I love this idea that Link discovers ancient Sheikah writing, so there's still the ancient Sheikah making robot tech bullshit. <laughs> I also like the eternal youth from the power of technology because, you know, a sauna is supposed to be good for you. That's true. So if you if use you steam technology, you're like in a sauna <laughs> all the time. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So your skin stays nice. He's just so moisturized that the instant he's no longer moisturized, he turns into beef jerky. Right. The, he's so used to being in the sauna that when he exits the sauna, he just shrivels up. And that's how they managed to trap him beneath the land of Hyrule. Also, he's a Gerudo now. <laughs> oh. Thank you for that one, Jason. That that theory's a hoot. And upsetting. Nothing happens after spirit tracks. Come on. They're free of the Triforce. We have a chain of emails from Steven. Uh, Steve writes in, I'm listening to your episode 20 on the Breath of the Wild Divine Beasts. I completed them in this order. Urbosa, Rivali, Mifa... And then Rudania. That's an interesting order. That is an interesting order. I like. I I feel like the game tries really hard to drive you towards Ruta. We all went the same path, right? Close to it. Crystal, what was your path again? Uh, Mifa, then then Gorons, then Urbosa, then Rivali. That's pretty close to mine. I think I had Urbosa and Daruk switched. Yes, same. But we all left Rivali for last, even though Rivali's Divine Beast is the one that's most visible. I mean, there was no impetus to head over there. 
True. Uh, Crystal, do you want to cover the rest of Steven's messages? Yeah. Uh, in one of his videos, Matt Pat of Game Theory says that Hyrule Warriors Legend should be a canon, which it isn't, because it brings the timelines back together really well. There's also Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity coming out in November. We haven't gotten to these emails in a while. We're catching up. This is uh, October. And um, yeah, please not canon. <laughs> Hyrule, Hyrule Warriors Legends isn't canon. I see why you would uh, gravitate towards that, because it does provide a model for the merging of timelines. I just think it provides a bad one. <laughs> yeah. The, the the games without Hyrule Warriors provide the merging just fine. Hyrule Warriors is just another instance, which it does nothing with that instance. So let's just move on. Yeah. Um, let's leave Sia with her portraits of Link over there. Oh, okay. Poor Sia. And then uh, Greetings Book of Medora, I have a question for Crystal. Is Hylia Akatosh? Could you explain to us what this question means? So Akatosh is a god from the Elder Scrolls series of uh, computer games, the dragon mm-hmm. god of time, and Hylia is also the god of time. Now yeah, that seems pretty easy. Despite them both being gods of time, I would say they have pretty different personalities. Akatosh is Hylia. Hylia knows what she's doing. Hylia has a plan. She she's gonna she's gonna beat the demise. She has a whole plan with the hero and her reincarnation and everything. Akatosh uh, doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just kind of having a hard enough time keeping the timeline together. Is Akatosh a dragon? Yeah, he's a dragon. Sounds like a very dragon name. Yeah, yeah that's is. a very Elder Scrolls <laughs> dragon name. So Akatosh is too um, by the seat of his pants to be Hylia. Yeah, Akatosh is is having too hard of a time. He's split into many. He has many different personalities. Poor old Akatosh. He's having a rough one. Different personalities. Oh yeah, and they they all hate each other too. They like to fight against each other. Oh, I know that feel. See, that's a depression thing. Anyway, yeah. So okay, so pr- probably not. But I appreciate that Stephen uh, went out of the way there to go like, hey. Here's a question that Crystal will be able to appreciate in particular. I will gladly answer any questions about the Elder Scrolls. Yeah, that that's very true. Crystal is our Elder, Elder Scrolls expert. And Stephen continues, I'm going to tell you what I want to see in Breath of the Wild 2. Link loses his right hand and needs to learn how to fight left-handed, with Zelda assisting him through his frustration. I'd like to see Ganondorf as a protagonist, free of the control of Demise as the three parts of a Triforce fighting Demise. The fact that Ganon is in Ganondorf's name doesn't mean they are the same, similarly to the biblical Jerubal to Baal. I think it'd be cool to have a good Ganondorf, that's all. I mean, it would be very cool to have a good Ganondorf. As far as coolness goes, that's a cool idea for sure. I'd like to see a left-handed Link. Yeah, a left-handed Link is always good. Um, I would definitely like, they're setting up the possibility that Link is going to have to learn how to fight with his off hand. And this creates possibilities that Zelda could be involved in the gameplay in some capacity. Who knows? Why would you set yourself up like that, Cameron? I hope springs eternal. (laughs) Why? Why are you letting Lucy get the football up? Because when you play Age of Calamity... She gets that football so nice and covers it in like, oh, the chocolate chip cookies straight out of the oven. 
And it's like it's like we go from Breath of the Wild where she forms the emotional core of the story to Age of Calamity where she's actually the genuine protagonist. And it's like maybe she could do something. Maybe she's not playable, but oh god, oh god, I hope they don't fuck up and make her into a damsel in this game. I will lose all of my shit. I will find Fujibayashi and I will tell him he is a bad man. Nintendo most recently got my hopes up with Mario Odyssey because I became very convinced midway through the game that there would be like a post game with Peach. Oh, people started talking about how cool the post game was. And it's like, Peach gets to do more than you would think. And it's like, have you have you played Mario Odyssey, Crystal? I have not, no. Okay, here's a spoiler for Mario Odyssey. Uh, the thing that happens with Peach is that she kind of goes on an extended vacation in all the different levels of Mario Odyssey and you get to see her just like being a tourist and it's cute but the way that it had been set up for us through uh the grapevine we had thought that like Peach would be playable in the post game yeah people just lied to you I mean they didn't lie as such but they certainly oversold it and like can you really blame me for getting my hopes up just a little bit with regards to Zelda just a smidgy widge I mean, Peach was playable in Super Mario 3D World, so it's not like it's it would be, you know, crazy to expect and that. She has her own little ghost cap thing. It would have been a perfect swap. She could have been a little bit more floaty or something. I don't know. But yeah, it's just like, I don't necessarily need Zelda to be playable, but what if she's just around? That'd be good. The game is setting it up that way. Link is very clearly losing his hand in that trailer. Oh, they need to hurry up and tell us more about this game. They need to hurry up. But how do we feel about the idea of Ganondorf as a good guy? What's Ganondorf's motivation? Um, as a, like, you mean in the canon or like as a good guy? As a good guy. Oh, um, I guess in Steven's interpretation, it would be his motivation is to rid himself of the curse of demise, which has been making him evil for thousands upon thousands of years. He's, he's a generally decent guy who just happens to be possessed by Shaitan. There is a floating disembodied hand that he wants to get the one up on. But little did he expect there's like a weird blue guy with wings that only Sonic can, can get rid oh. of. Oh. <laughs> did that take you a minute? It did, yeah. Okay. This Monica is referring to um, the subspace emissary campaign of Super Smash Brothers Brawl. He was ostensibly a good guy. In which there's also a floating disembodied hand that Ganondorf wants to get a uh, advantage over. I mean, like for 40 seconds, he's a good guy. He's not. He's super evil the entire fucking time. It's just that a different villain shows up and like one-ups him. That is the way I could see him being a protagonist, I suppose. No, this 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 particular idea is about oh, yeah. Zelda and Link fighting Demise. Right, I wasn't meaning Steve's version. I just meant where can you see Gandorf being mildly protagonist? What do you see as his potential uh, motivation here, Crystal? I, I think I would like a Super Mario RPG kind of thing where Ganondorf's not a good guy, but he doesn't want this other bad guy to win. Yeah, the subspace adversary. Yeah, exactly. Mm, I guess, but do we see a possibility of a good Ganondorf? No. No, that's just not who he is. Yeah. It's like we talk about Ganon as the great devil, but really it's this guy. It's it's this guy. When we're talking about this guy, he isn't really separable 
in the same way as mythological figures of old. Ganon is Ganondorf, and Ganondorf is Ganon. People, I think it would be fine oh. if there was a, a different uh, male Gerudo character who was like, listen, I know the last guy was, was pretty bad. I'm not going to be like that. But that's, that's, that's not Ganon. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yes. I'd be fine with him showing up and be like, hey, so I know both ice and fire magic because my moms are like that. And I think I could be a big help to fighting Ganon. That's, that's what I want to see. Yeah, uh, people love a idea of a, a good or redeemed Ganon, but it almost immediately falls flat. He is so evil. Like, just any plot, any plot just falls over, because what do you do in that case? Well, I guess we need some some big evil Ganon person. The worst thing about Ganon. Skyward Sword is that introducing Demise let people run with the idea that Demise is worse than Ganon. He's not. Ganon is the one that came after and built on that legacy of evil to become something entirely else. Ganon was so much more evil that people forgot who Demise was and folded him into the legend of Ganon. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad, Ganon. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Stephen... I'm sorry, Stephen. I just don't think good Ganon works. Ganon's the he's he's the devil. He, he's just the devil. Stephen continues. I'm still hoping they can bring the Age of Calamity back around to Breath of the Wild. But if they don't and do eight champions, they could do Pacific Rim style dual piloting, which would help against the blights. Now, Stephen sent this about two weeks before the release of Age of Calamity. Um, this would have been after our episode about the uh, demo. Mm hmm. So our theory about the A champion showing up was out before he sent this particular email. Um, I do agree. We're not going to talk about how the game actually goes in this episode. But I do agree that Pacific Rim style piloting would be really cool. We could talk about what happens in the episode. I mean, how spoiled are you on this, Crystal? I don't know anything. Oh, okay, we're, we're not, not going to talking this. about yeah, no, no. dick. Okay. I'm so I guess in the a, game they're going to fight the Darkspawn, the Blights? The, I like the idea of the Darkspawn coming up out of the Earth. The Darkspawn of Dragon Age lore. <laughs> and it's like they come out and there's just like 10,000 Guardians staring at them and they're like, oh, shit. How much do you think the Darkspawn would be able to do in Hyrule? Uh, uh, I think they would lose. They'd probably lose. They're not really How? that tough. What's the origin of Darkspawn? They get transformed. People get transformed into Darkspawn. Oh, right. well, so not exactly, Monica. They actually made it even more edgy and badass for a dark fantasy. You see, it's not that people get infected. It's that women get infected and then become big baby-making machines that poop out Darkspawn 24-7. I remember, like, boobs everywhere. Like, really <laughs> big boobs. <laughs> But. You see, uh, Dragon Age isn't your grandpa's fantasy. This isn't a fucking Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit for kids. This is dark fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Great. This fucking Gears of War bullshit. I'm, I'm thinking that the light of Hylia slash Triforce energy would expunge Darkspawn. I got to think that the instant they show up, they run into one of two problems. It's like they run into the Guardians and the Guardians just like laser beam them back into their fucking holes. Or they run into Ganon who eats their old gods. But 
I which game did they reveal the brood mother thing in? That's in Origins, isn't it? Oh, it's in the uh, extension pack. Oh, expansion Awakenings pack. or whatever the hell that was called. I need you to slap the dough. Okay, y'all, excuse me for about five minutes. Y'all keep going with the emails. I think it's funny <sighs> that in the course of a mere five years, Dragon Age completely pivoted to this is badass dark fantasy to like. No, we're just we're just like doing Tumblr fan fiction where you can date all the guys. I feel like it kind of started that way, and then it did an edgy pivot, and then it pivoted back. Am I wrong? I I haven't played Inquisition. I I well, I know before it was reannounced as Origins, it was previously announced in like 2004 as just Dragon Age. So maybe they had a different uh, marketing back then. But Dragon Age Origins definitely had. Let me let me link you a Dragon Age Origins trailer. Yes, please. Dragon Age Origins violence trailer. There in was the a Discord. violence trailer. Yes. Peggy eighteen. Oh, we have the donut, donut, donut. Hell yeah! They love the shot of the impaled people. Oh, <laughs> oh, and there's the Lincoln Park. Oh, it's Marilyn Manson. Oh, Marilyn Manson. The game was not like this. No, the game was wasn't like as much like six. this, no. But they did still have things like, uh, you're going to see the blood all the time. Oh, some skin. <laughs> that rain of arrows. So this was a trailer entirely from the the first 20 minutes of the game and the last 20 minutes of the game. Yeah, just a bunch of uh, contextless violence scenes. Scenes that become a lot funnier when you do know the context, because it's a lot of like, oh man, this is a really tragic death. Uh, this this shows just how fucked up war is. But here's just like, <sighs> fuck yeah, man, war is sick. Well, you gotta appeal to your main audience, which is the gamer guy. And then the cut to the very chaste sex scene, underwear on... <laughs> And then the final punchline is when they reveal your guy's face, and it's the most generic Nathan Drake, uh, Desmond Miles, uh, Alec Mason face in the world. Fantasy Shepard face. At least Shepard had, like, his iconic lip scar. <laughs> well, yes, Dragon Age iterated and then had the, uh, the blood swoosh, right, in the next one. Yeah, Hawks, a uh, little, little blood over the nose. Iconic. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And then you get to Inquisition, wow. and all that tone is completely gone from the marketing. I don't remember Inquisition's trailers. I just remember some green crackly shit. There's a big green hole in the sky. Yes, yes. And I guess they went the, the swashbuckling route. And probably realized that a bunch of their players were women. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> There's definitely much more focus on uh, uh, the relationships between you and your party members. Like, we, we, we are the Inquisition. We, we're a team. We, we have, we're best of friends. And sometimes we might kiss. Who knows? Who knows? Where were we talking about? Yeah, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 uh... Something about Dragon Age. How do we get to Dragon? Something with a dark spawn. Yeah. The, oh, How do we the, get to the dark spawn? The dual piloting would help against the blights. And I was like, oh, the blight. And I thought of Loghain saying, the blight. Uh, right. Stop the okay. blight. Yes. 
and just uh, imagine Loghain piloting uh, a, a divine beast. <laughs> Be like, Revoli's down, the blight got him. Uh, Loghain's too much a, a I play by my own rules and by myself sort of character to, to do well in a team. Oh, he's like Revoli. With the other champions. <laughs> True. Um, dual piloting would be fun. I, one person could be the stompy stompy and the other person could be the pshoo pshoo. Yeah, that's a fun way. I remember playing games like that. It's a fun way to do it. Star Fox Zero really didn't work very well, though. I I can't say I've never played Star Fox Zero. Cam and I did, and uh, he did the shooting and I did the the flying around. Only it, it really controlled... Not great, and I remember in the 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 end boss, the it was so hard to for me to see that I had to look over at his screen and try to pilot that way, which is uh, awful. <laughs> but it could be done well, I believe. My version of this was playing uh, Doom with my dad, where he would he would be he would do the arrow keys to move, and I would press the space bar to shoot. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Cam from the other room points out Affordable Space Adventures also did it very well. So, yes, um, where I was controlling the ship, uh, controls as the engineer, and he was the everything else person, (laughs) including the gunner. Nice. I like co-op games. Yeah. You want to take the next email? Yes. This email is from Tyrell, entitled No Question Here. Just wanted to send some love and appreciation at y'all. Thanks for making the podcast. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on future games. Thanks, Tyrell. Thank you. We are are in November. I'm glad we could read your appreciation at this stage. Um, I'll read the next one for Cam. Okay. It's a Bloodborne one. Did we read this during the Bloodborne? Um... Oh, yeah. Favorite boss fight. I do think we did. So I I will read the next one. Age of Calamity requests. Dear Book of Medora Makers, longtime listener, first time mailer, while I'm eagerly waiting to hear your views on Age of Calamity, I do hope that in the multiple episodes, you not only spend time on all the lore presented in the game, but also share your top. Well, we should leave this till Age of Calamity. Let me back out of that one. I will likewise back out of the next one. Oh, Cam's back. I think we can address She, They, Zelda. Y'all watched the Dragon Age Origins trailer without me? Uh-huh. The Do you have any comments one. on the Dragon Age Origins violence trailer, Cameron? It's fucking sick. <laughs> See, also, the thing is it, is, it is funny, but also it is sick. It's both of those things. It is like exactly what you would expect out of marketing of the era. Who do we think our target audience is? Oh, white, male, uh, 15 to 25... Although the Marilyn Manson kind of threw me, like, maybe 15 to 35. We're skipping a bunch of questions. The Marilyn Manson's even funnier in, like, the teaser trailer, where it's, like, normal fantasy music, and they give a big speech about, you know, Grey Wardens, they sacrifice everything to, to protect the people. This is what it means to be a Grey Warden. And then it's, like, a hard cut to your guy slashing a sword at an ogre while this is the new shit place that is so good i just that 
you framed that in a way that it sounds really like discordant but to me that works because the way that framing is just some pro-military bullshit and then you switch over to this is the new shit as a license for stuff which is really just sort of bog standard and i i like that as a marketing thing it is so on the nose and so ridiculous it just works for me I believe that is the one where they try to make the Grey Warden's iconic trait uh, a like tribal face tattoo on a very generic white guy. Uh-huh. Ooh. They should have just hired a model like Mass Effect. It would be good to hire a model. Underwear model, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was a sexy model. He was great. They, they didn't hire a model for Femship, though. Uh, no, they I did not. I think they took fan art. They, they canonized a the fan art. Red-headed shepherd. Yeah, yeah, they they kind of canonized the one face that everybody ended up making because it's like yeah. the one face that looked kind of good in the character creator. It wasn't a great character creator. No, I think that's probably why a lot of people suck with Mark Vanderloo because his face looks a lot better than anything you can make. It just looks like a face, even if it's like a model's face, which is sort of weird, especially combined with Mark Mears' voice. I enjoy Mark Mears' performance. I like Mark Muir's performance. It just looks weird with Vanderloo's, like, extreme intensity. Mass Effect is full of weird puppet people, except for the aliens. The aliens often look pretty good. And by the aliens, I mean the Krogan. <laughs> Krogans do look good. They're the best guys. They are. I th- I've decided we will skip the She They Zelda email and also leave that for Age of Calamity. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. So, Kim, you can read, thank you, some sap, and a question. Okie dokie. This is a long email, so I may take a break partway through it. We'll see. Hello, Crystal, Monica, and Cam. I like that using the names in the proper order. I just wanted to say thank you for your podcast. I love everything Zelda and love listening to you guys. Each of you are so engaging, funny, and intelligent. Oh, Let's not go that far. Guys, y'all, <laughs> y'all give me a big head. Some sappy background. I had played some Zelda games when I was a wee lad, but it was so challenging that I gave up. Showing my age, this was before the internet's helpful guides. I eventually succeeded in beating the games while shamefully cheating once I could acquire maps and walkthroughs. Those games were the original NES Zelda, then I think A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening. I didn't really play any others for a long time. My friend... It's not cheating to use a guide in any of these games. There's no shame in using a map. You gotta... Their execution in those games is still pretty tough. Fast way forward to 2013. Suddenly, my mother was in the hospital. I was always to help her get better and then when she was sick, but I couldn't do it this time. She was in the hospital for a really long time, and her getting better didn't seem like a reality, although I kept hoping. Anyway, in between being at the hospital all day every day, I saw that Wind Waker HD was recently released. I watched the first few episodes of Let's Plays and thought, why not? I loved that it was 3D and never thought of Zelda as 3D. I was extremely out of the loop. I got so absorbed in the story and gameplay, and it eventually became my favorite Zelda game. I loved it so much I played almost every game in the series afterwards, and am still playing. Unfortunately, my mother passed away that August. I was an only child, and this was so sudden that I am still reeling. It still hurts a lot to this day, but I will say that I am so thankful that I got the nerve to play a Zelda game again. I think the reason I fell so much in love with The Wind Waker was it gave me the ability to help and save people and do good when I wasn't able to do that for my mother in reality. Sorry for the sap, but that's what Zelda means to me, and I'll keep on playing. And my question. I am so into the Dune series right now. Oh, this is a hard left turn. 
I have tried many podcasts available, but I keep imagining the three of you discussing it would be so amazing. Are you a fan? And if so, any possibility of a Dune Lore podcast? Thank you for your time and hard work. And again, I'm a huge fan. Jerry. Well, thank you, Jerry. That's, Thanks, Jerry. That, it takes a lot to be that vulnerable regarding the death of your mother, Jerry. And I appreciate you being able to put yourself out there like that, both in terms of what you experienced and what that has meant for your investment in these games, too. Thank you. Yeah. I Both Cam and I have dealt with parental loss. Yeah. Um Cam, his mom, and me, my dad. And uh, my dad in particular, we spent pretty much a year with him in the hospital with uh, stage four cancer, lung cancer. And the things, the media that you can consume during that time to try to pass the hours is really significant. Yeah, I've got a big attachment to Hunter Hunter based on those times and waiting around. You watched all of Hunter Hunter during that I time. had that much time and a lot more. And I think for me, it was just Magikarp, <laughs> the Magikarp, oh, Magikarp jump. Yeah. yeah, Magikarp jump, which uh, it was soothing because all you had to do was just kind of flick your finger around and Magikarp get berries jump. For, yeah, get the berries for Magikarp and raise all the Magikarp and catch all the Magikarp. And that was what I needed in that time. Mm. So I can definitely understand a game, you know, having that deep connection during a very troubled time. I don't think I was playing anything in particular when my mom died. Or if I was, I don't remember what. But that was fast. Yeah, we had a very different experience. Yeah. Dune? Crystal, how do you feel about Dune? The only Dune book I've read is I believe the title was God Emperor of Dune. You jumped into the fucking deep end. <laughs> well, well, why you know, did you jump? It was reading time in fifth grade. And oh, te- my God. And the teacher was like, I-, I don't know, pick any book off the shelf in this room. I was like, God Emperor of Dune. That sounds like a cool title. I guess I'll read this one. I mean, holy <laughs> shit. You were like 11? Yeah. For a title, it's a great title. What a great title. That's how I ended up reading The Pillars of Creation. Nobody read that. Um, but wow. How, how, did, how, how did you interface with God Emperor of Dune What when you was 11? Uh, I don't. I didn't really uh, internalize anything that was happening, so I don't remember anything that happened. There was an Atreides who was the God Emperor. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were worms. Yeah, that did happen. Spice. You looking forward to that movie? Eh, worm's eh. not that big. Oh. <laughs> Should be bigger. Should it be bigger? The worm could be bigger. Ain't it like 30 meters across or some shit? How big do you want it to be? Big as it can get. That's pretty big. Maybe it's not the biggest one. Maybe it's not Shai Halud. Yes. Uh, uh, Cam, do you want to talk about your Dune experience? How about you talk about yours? Okay. I have have only read the first book. Just Dune. Uh huh. I have read it maybe fifteen to twenty times. Um, I think that this gives the impression that you're a much bigger fan of the book. No, than you are. <laughs> I I have moderate feelings about this. Uh, the book. I enjoy it in that um, it's sci-fi. It's sci-fi, and I always like the idea of you know. Um, sci-fi that does something or thinks of something or you know in this case i suppose is is a pretty loose analogy of uh oil and the middle east 
yada yada. Uh, it's it's fascinating though because the whole thing takes some I don't know arbitrary length of like forty thousand years into the future or something, and. You know, Herbert really couldn't conceive of a universe that wasn't still exceptionally um, rooted in the the 50s and 60s, 90s, uh, 1950s and 60s. Um, Particularly, I think, you know, we have the... The the race... Not the race, the, the group of space nuns this this the uh, very capable sexy space nuns who are basically just meddling um political you know uh, ninnies that and the the most prominent one of is effectively just a glorified secretary wife is my summary um it also has that huge standard to this uh, the 60s um trope of you know women have all the power here but here's this one guy who can connect to the women part of themselves and they're going to be the craziest most powerful significant person in the book is that the wheel of time trope cam yeah yeah it's the wheel of time trope too crystal i'm sure you're familiar with it as well i'm not familiar with the wheel of time trope oh Cam could probably describe it better than I can because I bounced off of the first book pretty hard. Um, so after he comes back in a minute, uh, <laughs> we'll get him to do that. But with that being said, I really liked Dune for what it was. But it is profoundly 1960s white male. <laughs> and there's a lot more interesting of a story that you could get um, if you just... Try to step outside of those boundaries, I feel. Now, why have you read it so many times? I've read it so many times because it's it's a, it's a very dense book. And you can kind of trip across very interesting factoids um, of, of world and universe building that, you know, it, it just fascinated me. I like a very dense sci-fi realization. Right, but there's a there's like a physical reason. Well, I'm not going to say that one. Oh, okay. Okay, fair. Um but yes, not really a huge fan of it, but likes it as a piece of written work. It's sort of how I wish that you could get into Gene Wolfe that way. My God. Uh. Oh, genuinely one of my favorite writers. Oh, my God. I cannot share this with you, and it drives me crazy going up the wall. So yeah, 15 to 20 times, huh? Yeah, probably. Has that has that copy fallen apart yet? Yes. It's gone now? Uh-huh. Well, you're, you're probably done reading it for a while. Yes. Okay. With that being said, I'm not. I'm, I'm sure fans of the series would really recall parts of it a lot more accurately and vividly. Meanwhile, I'm over here saying like, how many frigging guys did like um, the Atreides house have for servants that were good fighters? All of them. I I always think like two, and there's like three. <laughs> Whoops. I mean, the only ones you really need to know are Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho. Right. But you often forget that one of those two... They could really be merged into one role. Right. I'm sure it matters in the later books, but... It's the sort of thing where I remember a sequence with Duncan and Gurney better than she does. And I read that book once when I was like 13. So what's Wheel of Time about? Oh, my... (laughs) Wait, Crystal, 
Did you want to hear about what Wheel of Time is about? Yeah, what's the Wheel of Time thing? The gender. Oh, (laughs) okay. Let's see if I can recall this. In the Wheel of Time, which is, you could probably say that Robert Jordan gave birth to the tradition that would spawn Brandon Sanderson in the Wheel of Time because he had what is probably the most stringently defined magic system of its era. You could think of him as the father of modern magic systems. Mm. Now, magic in the Wheel of Time is best described as the one power which is sort of like the ability to weave the tapestry of fate out of the basic elements, which are air, water, earth, and fire. And the one power is generally divided into masculine and feminine halves because the whole universe has a gender binary. Um, As one does. As one does. Fire and earth are more masculine, and they tend to be controlled better by... uh, Oh, God, what are they called? They're not... uh, channelers uh it doesn't fucking matter it doesn't matter what they're called fire and earth are masculine powers and water and air are feminine powers and water and air weave together in a certain way maybe with some earth and there are good for healing and dudes can like blow shit up real good it's just that sort of thing now anybody can, can if they have the knack for it can control any element but men are invariably stronger with fire and earth than women are that's just how it works isn't earth more traditionally seen as female and sky as male um aren't rocks super tough and badass Uh (laughs) uh-huh am i yeah uh uh-huh mother earth father sky what are you talking about i don't know where you get this idea from because in there's only one god in the Wheel of Time, the creator, and there is an opponent, Shaitan. And I'm because. Not, and I'm not making that up. That's in there. Um, I can't remember if that's actually his name, but it's basically Shaitan. Um, <laughs> so there's a point in the distant past where somebody ha- wages war against Shaitan and uses so much of the one power against him that when Shaitan lashes back, Shaitan doesn't isn't part of the tapestry, so they don't use the one power. They use a dark power that is outside the power of the creator. And they hit back at this guy so fucking hard that it poisons the entire masculine half of the one power. So men who can channel go absolutely mad in the sense that they are destructive to the point that they destroy themselves and everyone around them in the lashing out of the power and it becomes a thing after that that only women with the magic can use it safely and it is a principle going forward for i don't know how long like a thousand years thousands of years that any men who show the ability to use the one power have to be gentled which is to be taken away by the women mages and to have their ability to use the one power cut away from them Except that there's this one guy, and the person who fought Shaitan long ago was known as the Dragon. That was just the name that they gave him. He was a guy, but they called him the Dragon. I don't know if dragons are a thing in this setting. I read nine of those books, and I still don't know if dragons are a thing or if it's just a name they gave this guy. So anyway, this kid, Randall Thor, he's the Dragon Reborn, and he's the super special boy who can use all the different elements at once, and he can touch the power, but he doesn't go super crazy from it, but he's a figure of prophecy. And anyway, he's a super cool special guy who's, like, super hot, and he gets this whole 
all feminine order of warriors who basically pledged themselves to him. And I'm not talking about the mages. The lady mages still hate him. There's a, like a dichotomy in that whole order where one side of it supports him and one side of it doesn't. Anyway, he gets so many chicks hanging off him, you have no idea. And that's Paul Atreides from Dune. <laughs> Is any Dune content worth consuming besides Dune 1965? Personally, I think that the first four books are quite good as books when you go into them knowing what they are. Don't go past that point. Do not. Don't read anything else. Here's here's my proposal. I think oh, no. it should be illegal to publish a book that's more than 500 pages. <laughs> and why is that? Because I can't read that much. <laughs> oh, Crystal. Or and if it's also, an audio your book. fantasy series can have no more than a... I'll give you nine. I'll give you nine entries. That's it. <laughs> you would love a... Uh, what's that guy name? Who? His books are not 500 pages. They're over. They're, and they are not a set of nine. It's like 13. Oh, Erickson? Yes. No, no, no. Erickson is not for crystals. Every one of those 10 books is a thousand pages long. <laughs> right. I was, I was teasing. No, that's... No, no, no. Mm. 4,500 pages. That's enough to tell your epic saga. The Bible's less than that. Yeah, but the Bible's not really like prose most of the time, is it? They hadn't really invented prose. It's more efficient than prose. I see. <laughs> so me with my potentially big-ass book, I'd have to be an outlaw. Well, you'd have to like record the audiobook instantly so you don't get banned by Crystal. Oh, I see, yeah. How long can audiobooks be? Uh, I don't know, like... 20 hours 20 hours sounds good mm, i don't know how that lines up i'd have to look that up but i think that it's fair to say that we're probably not set up to be able to do a dune podcast unless because crystal i can't imagine like maybe you would like some of those characters but i don't know if you would like that prose even as an audiobook it's a very dense like if you lose your way in a sentence you're you kind of have to reread the sentence a few times it's one of those it's one of those and like I guess my end feeling about Dune is it's it's good for what it is, but what it is is 1960s male white guy. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, Jerry, we're probably yeah. not doing Dune lore. But if we if we did a book club, if we did a book, it would club, probably be on there at least the first book. We'd probably talk about at least the first one. I'm gonna keep focusing on my uh, 2010s white guy Mormon Brandon Sanderson. How is Brandon Sanderson's books? The book's good. Like, it's long, but it is a good book. Do they go over 500? Oh, yeah. The Way of Kings is 1,007 pages. Oh, okay. That's some Erickson-level bullshit. It's just two... It's just... He just wrote two books. Well, no. He wrote three books. Each book is its own trilogy, you see. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. Like, they each deal with three separate perspectives. Something like that. Okay. I mean, that's kind of cool. He could nobody it up. Can... He could get that under 500. Damn, cutting out 50%. That's a lot. That's hard. Cutting out 50% is a fucking nightmare. Or you just publish two books. You could. Thing is, I like, not could. a lot happens in Way of Kings. It's, it's kind of oh, just horrible. about, you know, characters. But you could do, do the characters faster. Do their relationships change a lot? Yeah. I mean, that's that's things that happen. Yeah, th th yes, th things do happen. 
not as much as you might expect from a, a thousand page book. Oh, if you want to like, <laughs> there's a Robert Jordan book, one of the Wheel of Time books. I can't remember which one it is. It might be uh, number nine, number eight. That is infamous for being one of the absolute worst books because nobody's sure that anything happens in it. And it's like 800 pages long of Rand Althor staring into a fire and trying not to blow up everyone around him. That's the whole book nonstop for 8 million pages. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought you were going to try to sell Crystal on Erickson. I will never. Not not ever try to sell Crystal on Erickson. That that book has those books have too much plot and there's too much going on and they explain too little. I love them. <laughs> we are almost completely caught up. Yeah. Do we want to try finish out? Yeah. Let's do it. Whose turn is it? I think it's my turn. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Greatson. Greetings. I love your podcast. I've been playing catch up and just listened to the Phantom Hourglass episode. There's a mechanic where you can swap your fairy companion for one of the other two fairies, granting you either increased defense or attack, depending on which you pick. I find that touching fairy will at the end is rather diminished by this mechanic, since you might not have spent much time with the main fairy, if you decide you want to hit hard or be tougher, rather than get no bonuses at all. What do you think? Thanks for making a fun and wonderful podcast. Best wishes and kind tidings to you all. Thanks, Isaac. What do you make of this particular dissonance crystal this is why i like in more recent open world games they say things like oh it's always the same horse you have your one horse but you can put skins on your horse what yeah like in assassin's creed you always have the same eagle senu but you can make senu look different by purchasing skins oh my god that is so ridiculous so senu can be different species depending on what Skin you pick, but yes. it's always Senu. Yeah, it's always Senu. It's always your bird. You're not abandoning your bird for a new bird. But how do you feel it works in Phantom Hourglass? Phantom Hourglass, it, it does just kind of seem like maybe your relationship isn't that close because they used the other fairy. What was the name of the Phantom Hourglass fairy? It was Sea something. Sela? Sela. Something like that. The three spirits are Sela, Leaf, and Neri. Or Neri, I guess. But yeah, I think that having this mechanic where uh, most of the time you don't have Sela being the one who guides you around is sort of antithetical to the emotional thrust that they try to get at the end of the game. I <laughs> seem to remember, yeah, I, when I started the game... And I heard the little fairy effect with Sela. I'd like to broke my fucking I was heart. having a moment. <laughs> yeah. Because she just has Nobby's voice. Right. So I, I thought it was Navi and I cried. Uh, <laughs> that that wears off pretty quickly. And there's a little bit of plot with Sela in the beginning. And then it really just drops off. And you don't really... I don't feel anything about any of them. Maybe it'd be different if you played again. But Maybe. Leaf and Neri didn't have much personality to speak of. Right. I just remember wondering, like, why is Leaf's name Leaf? Like Leaf Erickson. He's red. Leafs are green. No, they're not. Maple leaves turn red. Sure. He's in the autumn of his life, Monica. He's trying to get through this. Do you feel that it takes away from the potential punch there, Crystal? I think it does. It also One other example of this is when in Wind Waker they talk about how 
that they garb the boys in green, just like the hero of legends. But my link didn't wear green. He wore the red tunic. That's true. <laughs> it's the best looking one. What about the blue tunic? Uh, I don't need to. I wear it when I need to swim. It's my swimsuit. <laughs> it is a swimsuit. The red tunic is my land outfit. I always went green because I like green best. Green's my favorite color. I would finish off Ocarina of Time wearing the red tunic and with the red, with a mirror shield. Oh, So yeah. there was nice, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's the best looking link. That's a link to me. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, Isaac, that's definitely a very valid complaint. Honestly, who didn't run around with Leaf getting double damage? That is the other thing, I guess. Especially with, like, Link's Awakening. Nobody's choosing the blue outfit. Everybody's choosing the red. You don't need to have more defense in this game. Best defense is a good offense. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is the premise of Bloodborne. Okay, speaking of Bloodborne, we have a Bloodborne-style question from Faust. I know you said preferably Zelda questions, but I'm sending a Bloodborne question in anyway, because now I'm thinking about it. Uh, trigger warning for Bloodborne-type grossness. That's a good headline. Bloodborne derives a lot of horror from pregnancy, childbirth, and menstruation, as you pointed out. On the one hand, logically, I feel that this is most likely based in misogyny and a negative reaction to bodies traditionally associated with womanhood and femininity. Like when it comes to games or media, dicks are funny, but vaginas are scary. But on the other hand, emotionally, this sort of horror really works for me because I'm a dysphoric trans dude and it reflects a lot of things I find alien or scary in my own life and about my own body, and thus really resonates in a totally unintended way. Are there any games or pieces of media with ideas you think most likely come from a harmful place that vibe with you anyways for reasons the original creators likely didn't even consider? Thanks, Faust. Oh, most Faust, of them. Faust, make a Legend of Zelda podcast. <laughs> yeah, most, uh, that is most media to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, that. that is a, to be clear, the most valid reading of any given piece of media is one that is rooted in your own experiences. That you get this feeling, this reading out of Bloodborne that's related to how you relate to your own body, fantastic. I'm glad that it can serve as that sort of catharsis for you, and it allows you to explore those themes in a way that's removed from you at least a little bit. Great. Like, just because we find Bloodborne kind of weird in that way doesn't mean that you have to feel that way about it, especially because it reflects on you differently. Right. Or you can feel it weird, but, you know, fitting into understandings that you have. Eventually, we're going to have to talk about Mother 3 and how goddamn weird that game is and the way that that has obliterated me in ways that the author probably didn't intend long term. But death of the author. Yeah. And I will say, uh, pregnancy, childbirth, and menstruation, like, are scary things, and they are valid targets for horror media, but Bloodborne doesn't really take the perspective of someone with a uterus. It kind of takes the perspective of a cis guy thinking how weird and gross it is. That's true. Yep. That's a a pretty good summary. And, like, Bloodborne's a pretty good horror game. It's just that the themes for its horror games comes from a space where it's like, do you have any... Uh, should we pick specific examples that are these things for us? Uh, 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 hold on, let me, what's the, f- f- I forgot the author's name, Fire Punch. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. By, T- tell us about it. By the author of Chainsaw Man. It's the manga he did before he did Chainsaw Man. Tatsuki Fujimoto is the name of the author. Mm. Fire Punch is set in the world. It's post-apocalypse. The, it's a world people got superpowers. Someone got the ice, which got ice power, froze the whole world up. Now everything's fucked up. And uh, Fire Punch is uh, a, a media that has a trans man in it. And the representation as such is not very good. Yet it does resonate with me. It, it has a like uh, a certain raw emotion, raw vulnerability to it that is like... It gets a lot of details wrong. Seems to like not understand that certain things are possible. Like doesn't doesn't seem to understand that hormone therapy exists at all. Yeah. Only the surgery. Yeah, it's got that particular narrow view of it. But still has like a certain raw emotionality to it that hits me just right. It does try really hard to get a feeling down, doesn't it? I'm afraid that I don't have a ton of things that I can point to like this for myself, where it's like, I love things in spite of them being problematic, but I don't love things that, like, weren't... I'm a cis white guy. It's hard for me to point to something that affects me in a way that's out of keeping with how the author intended, because it's just like, maybe there's something out there about depression that was done poorly in many ways, but strikes me for that. Maybe there's something about mental illness, but it's not something that's coming to my mind right now. Generally, most things are written probably for you as a target audience. It, yeah. I'm the, <laughs> I, I'm the, a lot of, you're the Homer Simpson. I'm Homer. I'm 25 Homer. to 35. Everything's made for you. Here's Everybody listens to me. Gum nuts. Yeah. Gum nuts. Yes. Finally, gum and nuts together. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, aside from the obvious example of us consuming Zelda in ways that probably weren't intended. Yeah. I'd say, um, most women and their interaction with Star Wars also. Fandom is this. <laughs> yeah. Transformative fandom. Right. We we made things of it that, you know, I'm sure Lucas did not conceive of. And yeah, and most of the time, it, the time it is a giant, you know, bargaining, uh, negotiating and working your way around things. But that's fine. That's fine. A-okay. I'm glad George Lucas directed a, a, the most popular sci-fi trilogy of all time starring a gay man yeah luke skywalker is gay to me yeah there's been a lot of oh i mean this is mandalorian spoilers oh well i mean he showed up with the chanel boots yes uh a lot of shipping with uh our boy jarn yeah den it's like sure (laughs) i'm not not? i'm not bleeping that okay i know what happens at the end of the mandalorian what happens crystal the guy shows up. The guy does show up. The guy does show up. Some people were surprised. <laughs> for for Cameron and myself, we were just like, well. <laughs> it can't be anyone but this one. <sighs> the Jedi are badass because they have the power to kill people with the force in their lightsaber. Yeah, that is exactly why Jedi are cool. Read the High Storm- Republic where the Jedi are going to, uh, let me check my notes colonize the outer rim bring light to the darkest regions of the galaxy 
fight for that, control of the force itself? Now, maybe I'm wild in the head, but I just read Heart of Darkness and way too much of that sounded way too familiar. <laughs> it was to the point where I was like, are, are they are, are they going to write a thing about how the Jedi are evil and the Republic is bad? Is it going to be like the prequels? I can't tell if they are or aren't. I feel like they probably aren't. Okay. I haven't watched or seen whatever it is about the High Republic. I would hope so. You know what's really great? Ancient Rome. <laughs> Things were better when everyone was Roman, says the High Republic. And all the Romans lived in the little coliseums. Yeah, and all their little coliseums surrounded by white marble. Those Roman statues painted are fucking ugly. They're not... They're hilariously great. Uh, they're, they're better naked, I think. Um... But we yeah, have reached the end of the question. I just wanted to thank Faust again for that because that's Bloodborne's a good game and it's good to be able to interpret things. I, I think that's one of the most important themes of this podcast in general is that the way that we interact with a work is probably more important than the work itself. Uh huh. That's it. Yeah. Thank so you, thank Faust. You. Yeah. Thanks. We have reached the end of the non Age of Calamity questions. Yeah, that's a podcast right there. Rain down the confetti. You can send us more questions to uh, Podcast at gmail.com. That's Podcast at gmail.com. Cameron, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at CamWriter. You can find me at ArcaneCrystal. If you want to hear this podcast and others early, you can subscribe at Patreon.com slash ArcaneCrystal. If you want to hear other great podcasts, you can head over to AudioEntropy.com, the network that hosts this show. There are shows like Eidolon, an actual play podcast about an RPG inspired by JoJo's and Persona. You can listen to Let's Plays, the show where we scientifically and objectively rank every sh- uh, video game according <laughs> to its quality. There's MCU Complete Me, where we decide if the Marvel movies are good or if they're bad. There's shows like Totally, I'm sorry, Totally Reprise Presents Common Repriser Forsay. No, that isn't the name. Yeah, that is the name of the show. Totally Reprise Presents Common Repriser Forsay. Okay. I recap podcasts about Common Writer Forsay. The hosts are very funny. Would you like to close with a joke? Please. This joke comes in from Terminal Recession. Two Zora are in a pond. One turns to the other and says, Man, is it cold in here or what? The second Zora turns to the first and says, Oh my god, a talking fish! (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) That's great. Oh shit, okay. I I would also accept Gorons at a talking rock. Oh, that got me. I think I found that funnier than you did. That's just funny. I liked it. Yeah. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody.